podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. There's a famous line in the third century historian Herodian, uh, where a general advises the emperor Commodus, uh, recently come to the throne, that Rome is wherever the emperor is. And the general is trying to persuade Commodus to stay on the frontier, continue to fight the barbarians rather than go back to Rome and enjoy its pleasures. I'll note that the uh, general who made that observation was the model for the uh, character of Maximus in the movie Gladiator. But it was a prescient kind of statement made by the general in the late 2nd century, by the historian Herodian who reported it in the 3rd. It wasn't until the late 3rd century when emperors really began to leave Rome for good and uh, make their headquarters uh, closer to the frontier uh, in both east and west. Uh, and so places like uh, Milan and Trier and Nicomedia and Thessaloniki all became little imperial capitals where emperors sort of recreated the, uh, the modes and orders of being in Rome. And those cities were called New Romes, Little Romes, My Romes, uh, in all kinds of ways. And, of course, we know that that trend culminated in Constantinople, you know, the New Rome that overshadowed all the rest and created a new... Roman world of its own in the East. It became a kind of sun around which an Eastern Roman world gravitated. And it kind of eclipsed all of the other little potential Romes that emperors had been creating. Now, there's one city that doesn't quite follow that pattern, um, and it's Ravenna. And Ravenna is a city that began to host the imperial court much later than all of these others, much later than Constantinople was created. Um, So this is the Emperor Honorius, In the early 5th century, he made it a kind of parallel court sort of capital. So he moved from Rome to Ravenna. And emperors would sort of shuttle back and forth between Rome and Ravenna for some time. But the city had a quite idiosyncratic and fascinating history after that for, for almost four centuries, which is a topic of a book written by my guest today, who is Judith Heron. The book is Ravenna, Capital of Empire, Crucible of Europe. And I want to say a few words about what makes Ravenna so interesting, um, and also the book. Now, you might know Ravenna from its art. It hosts probably the most extraordinary concentration of early Christian churches and mosaics, uh, built or sponsored by emperors and the various courts that held power at Ravenna. And even if you don't know that you know them, you, you do know you do know some of them. So, for example, the famous mosaic of Justinian and his court, um, also that of Theodora, which is across the aisle, those are in Ravenna. Uh, and they are probably the most iconic images of Byzantine power. But there are also many other monuments in the city that one can fairly call spectacular. Now, there are a number of reasons why writing the history of Ravenna is a bit of a challenge. Um, and what makes this book so so important and significant achievement is that, in a certain sense, history tends to get pulled through Ravenna <laughs> rather than Re- Ravenna pulling itself through history. Uh, and what I mean by that is it tends to fall into various cracks in the way we organize history. So the three regimes that governed from Ravenna during this period from roughly 400 to 800 are the Western Imperial Court, um, often seeking refuge from Rome, which was a very turbulent city in the 5th century. Then the Ostrogothic regime of Theodoric the Great, who was sent from the East in the late 5th century, took over Italy, governed it as a kind of proxy of the Eastern Emperor, but in reality was independent. Um, And then, after the conquest of Italy, or Ravenna, by the Eastern armies of Justinian, It was the capital of the Exarchate. This is the province of the Eastern Empire in Italy. So three different regimes, all looking in different directions with um, different sort of cultural makeup. There's a Western Latin-based culture. Then there's a Gothic Aryan culture interfacing with the pre-existing Italian-Roman culture. And then there are 
all these eastern generals and administrators who are being sent by Constantinople to rule the same. So a lot of cultural mixing going on there. But more importantly, this kind of decenters Ravenna in a lot of ways. Um, specifically, during the 5th century, the Western Roman Empire is falling apart. And so the place doesn't really have the opportunity to shine as a kind of capital. It's associated with decline and fall. Then it's the capital of uh, a Gothic state, or rather a Gothic army that's governing Italy in a Roman way, but nevertheless perceived as foreign by most Romans and certainly heretical. Um, and it was also a dead end. In other words, the regime of Theodoric you know, was terminated dramatically by Justinian in a few decades. Um, and it didn't have much of an afterlife, d despite its own considerable success So while, while it was in existence. And then Ravenna becomes the capital of the Exarchate, which is this you know, Western projection of East Roman power that also kind of dwindles and, you know, loses power and eventually disappears in the 8th century. So the city is always kind of trapped in these dynamics of East versus West and and being an extension or surrogate of someone else's power. Nevertheless, it had an identity of its own. It certainly developed one. Uh, eventually became a very active city with um, its own traditions and institutions and sense of its own history. And it remains that to this day. My guest today is uh, Judith Heron, a professor emerita at King's College London in Classics. Uh, and uh, she's a historian I really admire, has written really fundamental books, uh, such as the formation of Christendom many decades ago, but also can write on <laughs> so many topics in Byzantine culture and history, including in mathematics and, you know, politics in the 12th century. And so it's a really tremendous range um, and is quite the ideal person to write a book about Ravenna, which mixes so many different elements of East and West in the early medieval period. Uh, so it's a great pleasure to have her on the podcast and talk about the book with her. I'm sure you will enjoy learning about Ravenna from her, as I did reading the book. As always, I also want to thank uh, Medievalist.net for sharing this podcast uh, on their website. Uh, so here's my conversation with Judith Heron. Judith Heron, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you. So as I was reading your book, uh, I found myself thinking about Xenophon. Now, you'll wonder why was I thinking about Xenophon. So this is an ancient Greek writer, a student of Socrates. The thing about poor Xenophon, he's a really smart guy, I think. He was a very good writer, and he was a historian and a philosopher. And the problem with Xenophon is that he falls into the shadow of Plato, his contemporary, as a philosopher, and he falls into the shadow of Thucydides as a historian. And I was thinking about poor Ravenna, in the period that you describe its history, right, from 400 to about 800, it falls into the shadow of Rome and things going on in the West, and it falls into the shadow of Constantinople in the East, for those who are Byzantine historians, and it kind of gets squeezed in the middle a little bit, and, you know, is seen as from the perspective of those other places, and rarely the way you kind of situate it in the center. So um, you're sort of liberating Ravenna from the tyranny of Rome and Constantinople. Uh, and so that's, I really liked, uh, appreciated reading that, that the narrative told that way. So can you explain to us why you chose to write the history of Ravenna in this period? So from 400 to 800. So what was important going on in the city uh, at that time that leads you to call it like the, the capital of your empire and crucible of Europe? this is the period when it precisely came out from under those shadows. I think that in this period and starting quite early on in the in the fifth century, Ravenna asserted its identity against Rome and it also asserted its own rule as a, a, a capital city over the remaining areas of the Roman Empire in the west, which was taken up by the Gothic kings and which became a great metropolis which I think Theodoric modeled on Constantinople. So you may say, well, it was a little Constantinople in the West, but it was the real thing. And it was far enough away from Constantinople for him to do what he wanted most of the time. 
So I believe that this period, even in the fifth century, we see Ravenna becoming, growing into a new role as leader of the West, the city that leads the West, what is left of the West that is not completely lost to hostile forces, which are never, never going to um, accept uh, anything quasi-Roman. Now, there aren't so many of them because most of the areas of the Western Roman Empire have been occupied by so-called barbarians. So-called because actually they were very, very well aware of what the Romans did and how they lived. And they'd learned a lot from them. But when they occupied their land, they didn't want to impose some sort of specifically barbarian rule. They wanted to govern them. They wanted to exploit them in the same way that the Romans had. And I think we see a very large pattern of generalized Roman imitation government. And that is where Ravenna could actually shine as the best of all those imitations and the most likely to survive in Italy, which was the most highly Romanized perhaps of all those areas. So in a way, I think it just cast off Rome as an ecclesiastical center that had no, no more significance. We have to remember that Rome had not been the capital of the Roman Empire since the late third century, when Diocletian decided it was very important for him to decamp, not just out of Rome, but all the way to Nicomedia in the east. And his colleague moved to Milan and uh, other deputy subordinate emperors, these Caesars, uh, set up their capitals in places like Trier and Arles and Thessaloniki and Antioch. And there was a, a proliferation of important governmental centers and Rome was not one of them. So Ravenna was able to pick up the pieces of imperial administration, wed them to its own notion of ecclesiastical superiority which was uh, obviously something that they took great pride in, but uh, had to be fought for. And together they made Ravenna this very important center and tracing its history through these four centuries, I found it more and more interesting and more and more worthy of uh, independent uh, um, uh, acknowledgement, uh, appreciation, uh, which I did, I did intend to elevate it. And I do think that's, uh, that's how it became so such a significant player in the development of something that we now call Europe. Yeah, so it's interesting you mentioned all of those other sort of provincial capitals, as it were, that the emperors went to. And for each of them, it's worth asking, why did they settle there? Ultimately, also Constantinople, like why did Constantine found his capital there and what was he thinking of doing? So let's um, turn that question to Ravenna. Um, the first emperor who set up shop there on a more or less permanent basis was Honorius, uh, an unlikely founder of a new order. Um, so why did Honorius, this is early fifth century, why did he choose to move his court to Ravenna? What, what advantages did the place have for him? Well, perhaps one could look at it the other way and say, well, what disadvantages were there in Milan? Milan had spread and become a very large city with an enormous fortification that had to be manned. Ravenna was a much smaller, more compact center with good fortifications. And it was set in this very marshy, boggy, lagoon-driven, uh, water-driven area of the Po estuary close to the sea, very close to the sea with a big channel bringing the, that could bring boats in from the Adriatic to the center of the city. And yet it was very difficult to besiege or to approach from the land. So it, it presented a very strong compact center with fortifications and a very direct sea route out into the Adriatic, to the Mediterranean, and of course to all parts of the Mediterranean, should Honorius find that he really couldn't cope at all in the West, in which case he would simply take a boat and sail to his brother Arcadius in Constantinople. So it had big advantages that he could understand. And indeed, during the sack of Rome, for example, when Alaric and the Goths were advancing through Italy, he just sat tight behind the walls of Ravenna 
and didn't go anywhere. He sent out his generals to fight, but Honorius was not a great fighter, obviously, not a great emperor, perhaps. Right. <laughs> he and his general Stilicho made a good choice. Right, so the, um, the criteria seem to be um, access to the sea and defensibility. Um, so it's not so much a forward operating base um, as Trier or even Milan, but more like a defensive place for the court to operate in uh, turbulent times. Yes. And so the next important figure in your story is Gala Placidia. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about her and why did she uh, leave such an important mark on the city? Um, in fact, she seems to have, so you suggest that it was she who first set up um, some very spectacular visual claims of imperial power and prestige in the city that were emulated by its later rulers. So tell us a little bit about her. Well, she's a most fascinating character. She is the younger half-sister of Honorius and Arcadius. So they share the same father, but after his first wife died, he married a second uh, who was Gala's mother. But she was orphaned when both her mother and father died uh, 394, 395, and she must have been three or four years old. So she really had a, 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 a tough life. And in the course of that, she was educated and clearly raised as an imperial princess, but through circumstances we can't quite trace, she was captured by the Goths during the siege of Rome in 410 and taken off as a hostage. And because she was a very important person, they must have treated her pretty well because they didn't want uh, to destroy this very important player, a card that they could negotiate with. And eventually after much negotiation and after a marriage and all the rest of it, she, went, she was brought back by her brother Honorius to uh, Rome and to Ravenna where she settled and where after the death of Honorius, she managed to insert her own rule as the mother of the young emperor Valentinian, who was two, only 10 years old. And so, or even, even younger. At any rate, from 426 to 437, uh, she ruled in Ravenna in his name, and she ruled over all the area of the Western uh, part of the Roman empire that was still governable. And she was certainly a very great power in the land. Not only did she build in Ravenna, but she seems to have played a very significant part in the revival and reform of Roman law, which resulted in the Theodosian Code. Uh, she made the con she made sure that the contributions to the code from Western sources were all accurate and uh, helpful and useful. But her fame is does rest very much on these buildings, and although. Uh, we know of several that have not survived. Today, we can still visit uh, the so-called mausoleum, not uh, her tomb, but a chapel and a side chapel attached to a much larger basilica uh, dedicated to the Holy Cross, and then a very large basilica de uh, dedicated to St. John the Evangelist. And that church suffered a terrible destruction uh, in World War II when it was hit by allied bombs aiming for the railway sidings but they caught the church and it was almost utterly destroyed. Uh, only the rather lower apses uh, at the east end are preserved. But the Italians rebuilt it stone by stone and it still looks like a fifth century basilica. And we know from 18th century antiquarians that in that church, she put up these extraordinary claims about her imperial uh, descent both from Constantine the Great and from uh, the Emperor Valens. And so she combined all the imperial claims she could and she put up their portraits and her own. And she stressed uh, that these were all Orthodox uh, emperors, not a single Aryan ruler was permitted. And she put in the Bishop uh, Peter Chrysologos, who was obviously a great preacher and a very important ally in her campaign to beautify the city, to Christianize the, uh, those who were non-Christian, to curb any sort of pagan uh, celebrations that continued, 
and to foster learning and uh, proper understanding of the scriptures and, and art. Because in these buildings, she seems to have employed very skilled mosaicists and the mosaics must have been very spectacular. The ones that survive in the mausoleum are quite impressive. And it's a very, very beautiful little building, but with one of these starry skies, dark blue with gold and silver crosses and images of deer and doves feeding at fountains and the apostles and preachers and glorious geometric patterns and flowers and vases of things growing out of the uh, multicolored and very, very spectacular. Yes, you have some great images in the book too, uh, color plates. And uh... well, fortunate enough to have a wonderful photographer who came with me and we ran around the city making sure that he could get good photographs in the right light. Uh, we did a week of a very exhausting week of photographing wow. and wonderful results, wonderful results. So Gala was actually a, she was a ancestor of Anike Juliana, right? In, in uh, uh, early sixth century noble woman in Constantinople who built a huge church, the St. Polyuctus church, right? And we, which has been excavated since the sixties. And she had commissioned an epigram where she also talks about all of her imperial ancestors in pretty much the same way, right? So that's like a tradition in this family Indeed. And, and you can see that these ladies are not just laying claim to a very distinguished ancestry. They are perpetuating it and they are telling the younger generation, this is what you have to live up to. So in a way, it was a new, new sort of propaganda, a different sort of imperial propaganda, more visual and more tangible perhaps than the epigrams that you might read or that poets might recite at your court, um, which were pretty much for the, for the literati. These were images that people could come in and look at and gawpat at and think, oh my, she's related to all those, including Constantine the Great. You know, so it's a very, very powerful new form of, of imperial propaganda. Yeah, I'm wondering also if the uh, stress on genealogy and lineage has something to do with the fact that these are women. Because if you think about it, Roman imperial dynasties, the, the first one that reaches three generations is Constantine. This is not a traditional aspect of the Roman Empire. But once you start getting longer lived dynasties, especially later with the Theodosians and, and, and these, so the survival of these dynasties d depends just as much on the women as the men. And this is an aspect that they can stress. Oh, yes. And of course, they are the, they are the body through which the generations are recreated. So right. should you have son, which is the most important thing for any empress, um, this is the guarantee that the dynasty can continue, however incompetent your, your young son. I don't think Valentinian III was incompetent, but he did, he did have problems, perhaps because of, a, of an overpowerful mother, who knows? <laughs> but certainly it, they, 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 were the, they were the link between the generations and therefore legitimacy. If you're going to have a, a, a dynasty that depends on inheritance, legitimacy is absolutely critical. And then of course, the Christian doctrine of marriage until death do us part was another very, very important element that assisted with the women in their claims because it would not be possible to divorce them unless they did certain really terrible things that could be proven like murder or excessive adultery or poisoning or something really, um, uh, really truly wicked, which of course Roman empresses has got away with again and again and again. <laughs> sure. Yes, I think uh, tomb robbing is one of the, <laughs> yes, I caught my wife tomb robbing. Anyway, yes. um, so let's skip ahead here. So the Roman emperors are eventually retired by these barbarian warlords and Italy comes under the power of Odoacco first and he's then defeated by Theodoric uh, who is sent from the East. And actually it's worth pointing out that Honorius and Gala were both, I think born in Constantinople. Um, Gala Placidia's regime was installed in power in 425 by an Eastern army. So there are close ties here to the East. And in 489, and then 
um, um, Theodoric arrives in Italy in 493. He takes Ravenna, makes it his capital. And he's also one of these Romanized barbarian warlords from the Balkans. Um, he had spent some time in Constantinople as a child, possibly up to man, 10 years or something. I mean, it was a very formative experience for him. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the how the Goths ruled Italy from Ravenna? So this is, but, but rarely, he rarely went to Rome. Um, so what stands out for you about the reign of Theodoric the Great? I think the key thing is that Theodoric was able to combine everything that he knew about Roman rule that he'd imbibed in the East by watching the emperors, by participating in the ceremonies, by seeing them uh, receiving embassies, giving dinners, banquets, and all going on religious processions and all. And so he'd seen that he'd, at, at, at close quarters and he combined all that experience and respect for Roman law and the importance of things like coinage and how to organize your armies and your taxation, you've got to pay for the armies and so on. And he combined it with his Gothic identity, which he couldn't possibly have abandoned because he had these followers who had marched with him all the way from the Balkans, right through the Hungarian plain, over the Julian Alps into North Italy, where they had defeated all their opponents. They weren't, but they weren't a very large group and they brought all their wives and children and cattle with them. So it was a, a big migration, but not that many actual warriors. And he had to satisfy their need for land and their determination to stay and to live peacefully with the local population. So combining the Roman qualities that he had he'd learnt in the East with his Gothic identity and satisfying his Gothic followers, he had to create a coexistence, a cohabitation of Germanic and Roman in Italy without disturbing the majority Catholic Christians with his own very Aryan Christianity, which of course he believed was orthodox and correct and true, and the Catholics were in error. In error. So, there was, a, there was obviously a division between them, a very major division, and I'm sure you would see it in the way they dressed and the way they did things, the way they went to battle. Everything about them was quite distinctive, but nonetheless, the Goths knew that they were not numerous enough to wipe out the population of Italy. They had to live and cohabit and coexist with them, and that went for the Jews as well. So one of the great achievements of Theodoric was to impose his own rule with a degree of toleration of the independence of other groups. And so the Jews were allowed to rebuild their synagogues, but not to expand them. And the Christians were allowed to build churches. The Catholic Christians were allowed to build churches and they did their thing. And he built magnificent churches for his, Catholic, for his Aryan clergy. So there was a degree of insistence upon this collaboration. And of course, it may not always have worked. And there may have been very bad instances of uh, aggressive domination by the minority. But there are remarkably few instances recorded um, of the type of violent occupation which we associate with the so-called Bavarian invasions. There was once the, the um, once Odoasa, the competitor, had been removed from the scene, there was a determination to settle the Goths on the land and to live side by side and get along. And that seemed to have given him a degree of acceptance and admiration and a cooperative stance which meant that he was able to impose his own type of rulership quite effectively with a group of Gothic Siones who seemed to be uh, warrior leaders, but given civilian responsibilities as well. And they were sent to settle quarrels and calm things when, or to arrest the people who were causing the problems. But these were also combined with 
Roman officials who ran the bureaucracy, who did the, the, the record keeping, who continued to perform the tasks that they'd done under the emperors. So there was an inherited uh, skill, uh, uh, an inheritance of skills, which were then exploited by Theodoric in a very, I think, a very imaginative way. Yeah, I mean, he was fairly determined to act the part of a Roman emperor and seems to have told the, all the civilian authorities in Italy, Yogi, you pretend I'm a Roman emperor, I'll pretend I'm a Roman emperor and we'll get along. Uh, and and in, in some corners of sort of scholarly world, there's some, um, there's a struggle to actually identify the Gothic elements because our sources don't, they're, they're slanted in a way that don't preserve it. So all of our Greek and Latin sources don't, you know, preserve very much about the Gothic side of things. Uh, you you point out the, the mustache that he bears on some of his coins and medallions. Um, but the language also survived. He commissioned some beautiful, the Gothic gospels um, on this purple parchment. It's really quite extraordinary. Very, um, very spectacular. Yeah, and his mausoleum is a strange monument. So anybody who goes to Ravenna sees this. I don't think we know exactly what to make of the, uh, of its design. You, you know, I, I read an interesting theory once many years ago. So the, the capstone, that's like this cap on top of the mausoleum, which is some, what, 230 tons or something like this. It's a huge thing. And uh, I read an article that argued that it's designed that way with that thing on top precisely so that the architectural elements beneath it can't be stolen. Mm -hmm. that it can't be dismantled. Yes. And that, it worked. If that's the intention, it worked because they stripped everything from the building that can be taken out. But everything else is kept in place by that huge thing. <laughs> anyway. And in fact, when they excavated it, I, I talked to some of the excavators in Ravenna and they said, you would not believe the extent of the substructures that are required to hold it up. Oh. They and for meters and meters and meters beyond the walls that you see underground, and they are these enormous platforms with a lot of air kept in them so that they can hold up this huge weight, because the walls themselves, although they're very solid, they, they might well have crumbled, but underneath there are the most huge substructures, which may mean that it was very, very well planned. Well, I didn't know that. because. It. And they said, oh, yes, we're going to, we're going to. <laughs> so you would need that in order to disperse the weight, because otherwise it would simply just drive this building into the ground, yeah. given yeah. the nature of the soil. Yes, exactly. Especially because in this marshy area where every time you start to build, you, the water just seeps up. <laughs> right. They, they say they have to pump out from the basements every year. You have to have the people come and pump out the water. Um, because and everything sinks a little bit, you know, a few millimeters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So another one of his buildings is uh, Santa Polinare Nuovo. Um, so this is a church. Uh, it has magnificent um, mosaic decorations inside. So can you tell us what's distinctive about its iconography that that Theodoric set up? The bits that we know were set up by Theodoric are very striking early Christian records of the uh, miracles uh, performed by Christ on the North Wall and the events of the last week of Christ's life on the South Wall. And then two, a long tier of, of, of individual male figures unnamed, but very finely done and each one quite distinctive, bearing a little shadow to show where the light is shining from. And then uh, these great rows of processions of martyrs marching from the west end to the east. But where they set out from, where that's where we have the palace of Theodoric on the south wall and the uh, port of Classis on the north wall. And these are secular buildings with cityscapes showing the fortifications and the buildings inside. And clearly they are a claim by Theodoric that these are his his cities, his uh, creation and his palace. And since of course, we don't have anything that remains or hardly anything that remains from the palace, although it's been excavated, that area was very, very much underwater. These are, this is the representation of how the, the, the port and the city appeared 
at his time or how he wished them to be shown. And in the palace, he would have sat under a, a, an arch on a throne um, and the, uh, his courtiers or his attendants would have stood betw uh, between columns in an arcade that looks like a very uh, fine reception hall, just as we would imagine um, emperors sitting on thrones with their attendants all standing and bowing before him. So there must have been a very, very spectacular representation of the king, but this was taken away in the 560s when Archbishop Agnellus uh, was instructed to convert the churches which had been used by the Arians for Catholic use, and therefore they couldn't possibly have any images of the emperor, of the king, I'm sorry. <laughs> the Gothic uh, Arian king. Right. Yeah, yeah. And we think it, he was probably depicted in front of the port fortifications at Classis opposite. Um, uh, until quite recently, the feet of the figures below the ground level of the port uh, mosaic were visible. They've now been tidied up and taken away. But there must have been three or four figures standing in front of the port uh, fortification, and I guess the king and his attendants or the naval commander or whoever uh, advertising the fact that this is a great port. Yes, so the East Romans, when they took over the city after 540, they removed, they eliminated uh, the, these images of Theodoric and his court from the mosaics. Um, and yeah, from the place where you you say that the, he, the king, would have been depicted in, in the entrance to the palace and it's sort of labeled, right, palatium on, on, on yes. the and uh, because we've not only lost his palace in Ravenna, but the palace in Constantinople too, um, these, these mosaics are kind of a glimpse of what he probably thought a palace should look like from the outside, given his experiences in Constantinople. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. And of course, he visited, he'd visited Split, so he must have seen Diocletian's incredible, right. huge palace. Um, and he and he may have he may have seen other palaces, Thessaloniki, for example, where Galerius's right. palace would have been a very major uh, idea of of what modern imperial palace should look like. Yeah, and this is a running theme in your book. Uh, I should point it out that Ravenna is this place because it preserves these monuments and all of this art. It it shows us images of imperial authority that are lacking for us in the places where we would have expected them to be most concentrated, like in Constantinople. Um, and so it's it's really like a Ravenna function, like this big billboard where all of these powers that came through advertised their imperial status and prestige, leaving us with these incredible images that we don't have from other places, like the mosaics of Justinian and Theodora. So this is the next regime that takes over in Ravenna. And these are the most emblematic images of East Roman imperial authority that we have. And they're in Ravenna, they're not in Constantinople. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about those images? So these famous mosaics of Justinian and the one panel and Theodora on the facing uh, side, and what kind of politics do they encode? I think it's a very, very difficult issue because clearly the emperor and empress never went to Ravenna. So they were they aren't they aren't being commemorated because they made a visit there or they paid for the church or they did something very spectacular in Ravenna. Their general Belisarius did. Yes, he went there and he recaptured the city by negotiation rather than through fighting. And he, he took King Vitigis, the last of the Gothic kings, uh, and his wife and courtiers back to Constantinople, where they were very well treated. But Justinian and Theodora were there in Constantinople, and there, uh, there was no, there was very little time, in fact, from Belisarius's occupation of the city in uh, May of 540 AD uh, and his departure in July. So he must have been very busy setting up sure. Arizon, sending out people to, to conquer the other Goths, to capture any. Um, relatives of, of the ruling family, and so on and so on. The bishop at the time was Bishop Victor, and Victor's monogram is preserved on the, on the capitals of the 
ambulatory of the Church of San Vitale. So he must have been involved in some part of the building. And I suspect that he thought that it would be appropriate to have some image that recognized that this important, very, very important event had taken place. The Aryan king had been removed. Catholics had been reasserted uh, as rulers of the city. He as the bishop was in charge, apart from the secular officials sent from Constantinople. And it may well have been his idea to erect a panel which showed that he, Victor, was connected to the emperor Justinian. The interesting thing is that he didn't, we, we don't have that um, panel. We don't have anything that shows Bishop Victor because his successor, Bishop Maximian, decided that he should be the person who was commemorated. So I think we have a time lag between 540 and um, the dedication of the church in 548. 547, certainly, uh, uh, 547, um, when Maximian uh, arrived and had established himself. And how those panels got to be there and when they were exactly when they were put up and why Justinian and Theodora are both commemorated. I think this is very a very, very interesting issue. Theodora is associated with Justinian in nearly all the buildings. And in many of them, she's actually thanked in inscriptions that record, for example, at St. Sergius and Bacchus, that she is the patron or she has been a great patron. So she is thanked for her Christian piety and her dedication and her uh, expenditure. And there's nothing like that in Ravenna, but the panels are there and they are very large and they show the emperor and empress standing full length completely decked out in the imperial costume. Let us not spare any thought for not decorating them in the most beautiful way. Crowns, huge um, diamond pendula, enormous brooch holding the cloak together, purple cloaks, red shoes, everything that is the most important element of imperial majesty. Exaggerated, brilliantly colored, and with attendants on Justinian's side, very young military figures carrying their spears with an enormous shield, wearing their, their costumes for guard duty, not guard duty, costumes for the display right. when you go on, 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 you go on processions. So yeah, ceremonial parade costumes. And Theodora has these wonderful ladies-in-waiting clothed in the most beautiful silks. And the interesting thing is that little fragments of silks with precisely those decorations in those colors are found and they survive in tiny fragments. But you want red ducks on a green ground, you'd like gold cockerels on a blue ground, we can do it. Purple cloak and we'll have the three magi just walking up towards right. the virgin child on the hem. No problem, this can be done. And this is how it's shown really spectacular. And they are still in very, very good condition. So we do see there how people in Ravenna wanted to represent the emperor and empress. And whether that is exactly how they were represented elsewhere, we do not know because we have nothing comparable. Right. Yeah, I love teaching those mosaics. Yeah, aren't they yeah. wonderful? <laughs> yeah, the, all of the details are so significant. Uh, you know, the 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 feet you know so whose feet are sort of stepping on who else's that's a, like the hierarchy um and it so if i understand it correctly justinian's panel is a group of people moving in like a, a v formation like a flock of geese so justinian is in front and everybody else is sort of staggered behind him in either direction so they're coming right at you and he's bringing the bread i think for the eucharist and just theodora's group however is moving all of it to their right, right? They're going through a doorway. So possibly to go to the gallery in the church or something like that. And she's bringing the wine. Yes. Yeah. But I think Maximian is fairly prominent in the imperial, with the, with 
in, he's to the he's to the left of the emperor, so he's nearer the altar, and he has his two priests with him. So he's not he's not um, being pushed into the background in any right. way. Of course, he is the only figure that is named. So it he's is. put his name above. Let nobody think that this could have been Victor or any other bishop. This is only Maximian, Maximianus, yes. and here is hot from Constantinople, an ally of Justinian imposing his own persona. And he's a friend of the emperor. He's actually, he goes regularly to Constantinople. He's been entrusted with holding up um, the imperial theology in the, in, the, in the West. And this imperial theology of, of condemning the three chapters is just uh, an, 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 a very, very hot potato at the mm. time an issue that bothers everybody. And Pope Virgilius has suffered many, many years in Constantinople resisting it. So Maximian represents the imperial policy and he's there very large and very prominent, um, even though Justinian is clearly the most important figure in the, in the mosaic. Yeah, and you make the point that, as far as we know, it's not usual to put such full body images of emperors in churches, but that this might have been a local sort of Ravenese tradition today established by Gala back when she put herself and her own ancestors in a church. And so then it became a kind of arms race to Theodoric and then Justinian, like this is how you own the place. Yes, I think that is the case. And of course, if the Catholics went into the Aryan church of, of, of King Theodoric, what they saw was King Theodoric established in his palace and standing in front of his, his, his great um, harbor city, Classis. And this would have been paralleled by what they saw when they went to the church of St. John Evangelist. And there was a Gala Placidia with all her family. So there was a tradition which clearly meant that uh, this was appropriate. It was a secular um, type of decoration which became appropriate in Ravenna and is not very often seen elsewhere. Um, in fact, I don't think I've ever found an instance of it in Constantinople. But in Rome at the same time, there is the first, there are the first beginnings in the sixth century of the representation of, of popes in their own Mm. Uh, as bishops of Rome, as patrons, and they also wish to associate themselves with Christ. So they are there as, as the donors the, of the churches. And at Cosmas and Damien, you can see, here is the Pope presenting the church to Christ. So there is a, uh, another tradition which Rome is emphasizing, not with secular images, but with human images, living popes, not dead, alive, and still yeah. active. So there's a sense in which there's a competition going on, who can get most prominence, who can attain greatest glory. And uh, it's, it's a very, I can see that it is something that's uh, not just competitive, but it drives the whole notion of decoration in Ravenna. Yeah. And um, the, the only uh, comparable, well, it's not comparable, uh, but you know King David in, uh, at Sinai? Yes. Okay, so at the monastery of St. Catherine's at Sinai that Justinian sponsored, paid for building a lot of the churches there and so on. There's a, above the apse of the church, there are little medallions showing the prophets, I think, and figures from the Old Testament. And David is right in the middle. And he's the spitting image of Justinian uh, uh, in the uh, Ravenna mosaics. And he has a little cross on his on his crown, which which the King David would not have had. Would not have had. No, no. But that's that. That is a very nice touch. But you must remember also that around the base of the apse, the abbot and Longinus is also represented with his square halo, showing that he's still alive. And so is the deacon John, who's taken some responsibility. And then there's another little, tiny little bit of inscription for one Theodore, who must have done something very important in addition to the major figures who are identified. There's yeah. no image, but he managed to get his little inscription put up. Yeah. So people are, uh, I mean, individual, donors and founders of, of important churches are 
elaborating a new type of decoration. And visually, although it's quite difficult to see the King David um, at, at Ravenna in San Vitale, you can't miss it. And, and clearly there's a, uh, there are claims being made, which we don't see in uh, St. Polyuctos, although there would have been sculpted decoration and who knows whether actually there might have been some representation of Juliana Anisia, we don't know. Right. Certainly her verses were very beautifully sculpted and, and set up in magnificent, magnificent, uh, uh, florid, yes. uh, very beautiful uh, sculptures. Yes, I do like that art, I have to say, just aesthetically, I find it very pleasing. Uh, anyway, the, which is why I could never, I could never accept narratives just of the decline of Roman art and all of this stuff. Like I couldn't. No, it's just this stuff is so beautiful. I, anyway, we've gotten away from that now. But uh, you know, even back in the '90s, you could still re read it. Um, so in talking about these uh, distinctive features of art at Ravenna, so we've moved into this area that I'd like us to explore a little bit more, and that is. Um, not just the imperial regimes that governed the place or governed Italy from there, but just the local culture itself. So in your book, you trace the gradual evolution, there's, insofar as we can see it, of a local Ravenate culture. Um, so what forms did that take? I mean, it really just emerges more into the light of history in the seventh century. Uh, so still when it's uh, being governed by Constantinople or in theory being governed, so Constantinople sends a governor, uh, an official known as the Exarch, but there are clearly developments taking place in local society there that lead the city to develop its own distinctive identity and institutions. So what are the main um, uh, um, uh, points in that trajectory? What, what, what would you identify as the most important stops? Well, perhaps one of the most important is the fact that once the Goths realized that they were settling down and they'd got to their promised land and they were going to remain forever, they intermarried with all sorts of other local people. And because they uh, had, uh, the military had, were well paid, they had capacity to buy. And so they purchased extra land and they became landowners. And as they became landowners, they became settled in regions where their Gothic identity became very, very, uh, slight. It, it was greatly reduced by the fact that their Aryan belief became impossible to sustain. And this was partly not just because of the conversion of the churches to Catholic use, but also because of the law that Justinian passed saying that those who are heretics, who do not observe the Catholic faith, cannot make wills and therefore may not, that they may not pass on their inheritance to their descendants. And of course, once you become a landowner and you're settled with a with a comfortable right, right. and many slaves, the last thing you want to know is that your son cannot inherit it and your family cannot continue to live in this style, which is semi-Roman, but very, very cultivated and very, because of it, the wealth of Italy and its incredible fertility, the, the olive and the vine and the corn, and the fruits, make it a very wonderful place to live. Who wouldn't want to live in sunny Italy? <laughs> so it's in the it's absolutely essential for the Goths to abandon their Aryan identity, to intermarry and to inter, in, and to settle into their new life as uh, occupants of the soil and to get along, not just to get along with, but to cooperate with all the other local forces and adapt themselves. And in that way, they they continue to attend the exarch's court when they're all ordered. They continue to provide military service when required. He, the exarch leads them on many battles. They go, they, they campaign in the south of Italy, they campaign into, into southern France. They're very busy as uh, proper warriors should be, but they're also landowners and they have inheritance that they wish to pass on. And therefore the integration of Gothic, Germanic and Roman becomes a fixed, settled and established thing, which gives Ravenna a new identity, which is mixed and which is, draws on these different strengths and has a, a, a future that is very Christian, 
but very adventurous and I think much more forward-looking than the term late antiquity Im uh, 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 implies. Um, I have a, a, a long argument about the problem of late antiquity as a, as a denomination. I think it's, it's not helpful in the case of Ravenna, which is constantly adapting to new circumstances, um, moving forward with new Christian policies, not just building churches and, and monasteries, but actively drawing people into the court of the Exarch to enhance and to increase the power of this government from Constantinople, which is quite often quite independent. And yeah, so you talk about the, the, the combination of these three elements, uh, specifically the, the Greek, the Gothic, and the Latin. And while most of the local population would have been Latinate in some kind, but many of the cultural products of Ravenna mix these elements. Um, and you talk about the Greek as a, a, something that, especially uh, once we reach the seventh century, is imposed by Constantinople, or it comes from Constantinople, and it's kind of a relatively thin layer of top officials who govern the city, um, even into the eighth century. Um, and the Gothic elements are things that, you know, remain there just because of the, uh, especially in the, um, during the sixth century. Uh, and we have these papyri where you actually show how people are still using Gothic names or even Gothic expressions and their place names that have Gothic names. It's really fascinating. Um, so Ravenna, you talk about it as a kind of conduit that passes on this, this cultural mix to the West. Um, can, can you just mention a couple of cultural artifacts that, that reflect this combination? Well, the artifacts that, that, that came from the East quite clearly, for example, the throne of Maximian, this magnificent right. ivory throne made of very many huge ivory, ivory pieces all put together, not to sit on, a throne to admire, but it has Maximian's uh, um, name uh, uh, written in, uh, across the across the the front, and it's quite clearly uh, an object of immense value. And ivory being something of a an imperial monopoly, like silk and gold and silver, uh, it probably was uh, manufactured in the East and sent to or brought to Ravenna. Um, as a gift, um, but what a gift. We do hear of ivory thrones going from Alexandria to other places. So it's not that they were, un that they were unknown, but this is a very fine example. And then there are these instances of uh, how Greek culture was kept alive in Ravenna, not just by the Exarchs, I mean, this one who, whose widow recorded his epitaph in Greek oh, when yeah. he died, that's Isaac the, the um, exarch uh, who died in the 640s. But then in the, towards the end of the seventh century, when the exarch is worried because he loses his secretary who knows Greek and can translate the inf information that comes from Constantinople, the orders that come from Constantinople, they find a local lad who happens to have enough Greek to be able to translate at sight. And this Ioannikius then becomes a very, very important figure in Ravenna and he's sent to Constantinople and has to serve in the Imperial Palace because he's obviously quite a poet as well as being a very efficient translator. And eventually he gets to go back to Constantinople, uh, from Constantinople to Ravenna and, uh, uh, and is there with the Archbishop Damien. So there are people who are being taught Greek in Ravenna at a time when knowledge of Greek is really in sharp decline or has completely disappeared from most centers. Even Gregory the Great at the end of the sixth century finds it difficult to find Greek people to help him with translations and understanding what these, what he's interested in the ecclesiastical Greek. But of course, in Ravenna, they're, all, they're also translating Greek laws, Greek orders, the new, the new novels of Heraclius and so on. And they're also struggling with the fact that the emperors in Constantinople are constantly issuing or regularly issuing theological orders. Right. Either forbidding one formulation or encouraging <laughs> another formulation. Yeah, yeah. And many of these are not accepted in, in the West. So there's a, there are constant tensions about 
the role of, of, of Constantinople in organizing Ravenna's uh, beliefs. And the exarch's duty is to uphold them. And the bishop frequently says, no, I won't go along with that. So there are tensions. But on the other hand, the impact from, from the East is undoubtedly continuous and mostly beneficial because of course you only get things like silk and spices and jewels and gold. If you need a lot of gold, for example, buying off your uh, uh, unpleasant neighbors, you could perhaps not fight them, but send them very large pounds of gold, continuing Roman policy. Yeah. And that continues uh, as Ravenna is the point, the pivot between East and West and the entry point for so many different ideas as well as uh, artistic fashions and probably clothing fashions and eating fashions. Lots and lots of particular sorts of pottery are imported from the East Mediterranean into uh, Ravenna through classes. They drink the Eastern wines that everybody else appreciates. Oh yes, yes they do. Wines of Santorini and places. And they enjoy eating uh, what is eaten in, in Constantinople. So. There's a, there's a very, very tight connection, which gives the people of Ravenna uh, a very special access uh, to the way life is lived in the imperial capital. Yes, even in the eighth century, I believe the exarch was importing Greek wine <laughs> from the Aegean. There you yeah. go. <laughs> so, well, everyone wants it, but you know, who can get it? <laughs> exactly. Um, so I find these reversals quite fascinating and Ravenna is a place that really exemplifies them. So if you, I think, for example, like how in fifth century Constantinople, the administration of the state is functioning in Latin. The population mostly speaks Greek. And so there has to be this process of translation. So if you want to interface with the government, you have to at some point start doing it in Latin. And then it issues its responses to you in Latin. They have to be translated for you on the ground into Greek. And that in Ravenna, couple centuries later, the exact opposite is happening, where the population is speaking Latin and Greek is now the language of the, the upper uh, you know, echelons of the administration. And this has these really paradoxical effects. So, you know, so Justinian is issuing his legislation in Latin until 535, after that it's in Greek. And so up until that point, Roman law, has to be translated into Greek. But afterwards, Roman law is operating in Greek and in Ravenna, it has to be translated into Latin. I, yes. I just find these things fascinating. Yes, but I'm quite sure that this was something that they knew and understood as being part of their double, double identity, yeah. that they had this wonderful inheritance, which meant that they could always figure out how to make sense of what was going on in the great metropolis, because nobody doubted that Constantinople was the only major source of imperial power in the, in the Mediterranean world. Even, even the um, kings of the Franks, for example, sure. who didn't have anything to do with the emperors in Constantinople, nonetheless, they, they found it very nice to be called Patricius, and they thought it would be grand to wear a purple cloak and throw gold to the, to the people as they entered uh, Paris uh, in a chariot. Uh, these imperial customs continued to resonate and to be like a, 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 an emperor was always a very positive thing. Uh, and, the, and in Ravenna, they did it better. <laughs> so Judith, we're almost out of time, but I have one more question for you. And it, it, I think it's appropriate that we close this with Charlemagne because that's where your book ends. Uh -huh. What did Charlemagne see in Ravenna? Well, we know he went three times. And the first time he went to visit and he was entertained by the bishop, this is a story that may be entirely invented. But he asked the bishop um, if he could take away some uh, building blocks, some pillars, uh, columns particularly, and capitals and decorative features, lovely marbles from palaces that were destroyed or that were uh, could be looted or could be... Oh. He wanted to re remove very... Uh, useful and beautiful building blocks for his new capital in Aachen. He'd already asked the Pope in Rome if he could do some the same in Rome and was given permission. And then the Bishop told him he could have whatever he wanted and they got along well. 
But he then went back twice and he clearly did look very carefully because he then decided to take the big equestrian statue of that was called the statue of Theodoric on a horse. It was probably a Roman piece, but nonetheless, it was very, very, very large. And it was very impressive and it stood, it was erected outside the palace, between the palace and the palace church of Santa Apollinari Nuovo. So it was in a very prominent space and Charlemagne decided he would like to have that in Aachen too. So he went back and got another lot of loot from Ravenna. And although it's not evident that the palace church, which survives in Aachen, has actual columns that can be identified as coming from Ravenna, they, it appears that he took all this building material and of course he then built an enormous palace, which does not survive. So the, the material from Ravenna may well have ended up in the palace. Yeah. But certainly the, we know the equestrian statue was erected in exactly the same position between the palace and the church because uh, Winifred Strabo says, and, and composed a poem on it. And he says, it's a very, it's a dangerous and actually uh, a, not, a very, a not a very good thing. He's a bit worried about this statue. It seems to have evil potential. So there's a, that Charlemagne knew that he was taking from Ravenna things that were very highly prized, not just as building, though columns apparently were very, very hard to come by in the eighth century. The late 8th and 9th century, nobody was mining enormous columns that were tall enough to support a big, a tall basilica. And he may well have used them in his reception halls in the, in the palace. And he certainly put up the statue. So he was taking from Ravenna what he thought would enhance and make his new capital more imperial. And I, I'm quite sure he went, he was taken to look at all the churches and he saw the, the mosaic of Justinian. And sure. I think he looked at that and thought, yes, this, yeah. is, a, this is a real emperor. Uh, none of this military garb, none of these skirts, Roman skirts and short or togas or anything. <laughs> this is the way to be an emperor. And uh, that I'm sure influenced him. Yeah, you make the excellent point that he must have seen in Theodoric's statue uh, a sort of fellow Germanic warlord who had managed to master the forms of Roman imperial power and that there's a kind of affinity there. Precisely. Especially, yeah, especially since Justinian's own primary monument in Constantinople was his own equestrian statue yes. right next to Hagia Sophia. Yes, indeed. And that still stood. And yeah. of course, that it continued to stand and was even repaired when the helmet fell down or the orb fell off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people went and put it back. And how they did that is not entirely clear. <laughs> right. And so what Charlemagne might have seen in Ravenna is a kind of little Constantinople that he was trying to emulate. Yes. So, no, right. and you described that very well. Uh, well, Judith, thank you very much. This was a pleasure. Uh, for everybody, the book is called Ravenna, Capital of Empire, Crucible of Europe. And I strongly recommend it. It's a great read. Thank you for writing it. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk about it. It's been a pleasure.